Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard. You're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Brian Roof. Brian Roof was born in Detroit, raised in Southern California, and has lived in Las Vegas since 1981, which makes him a long timer by local standards. A UCLA graduate with a BA in Communication Studies and a minor in Journalism, he opened his first Southern Nevada-based marketing PR firm in 1987 and has since provided numerous clients with an array of professional services to help them achieve their goals. In 1983, Imagine Marketing of Nevada, now Imagine Communications, acquired his firm, and today Brian serves as Imagine Communications Managing Partner. He is also a successful novelist, and his breakthrough novel, Dice Angel, is one of the top-rated Las Vegas books on Amazon.com. In addition to Dice um, Angel, Brian authored Money Shot and The House Always Wins, Las Vegas novels that established him as one of the keenest observers of life in Sin City. On a personal note, Brian is married with two grown daughters and five grandchildren. In his spare time, he enjoys reading movies, playing guitar, and the occasional trip to the casino buffet lines. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And you know, because of, not to be negative, but because of COVID, they shut down a lot of the buffets. So my options are much more limited than they used to be. Mm-hmm. But they're figuring it out. They're gonna they're gonna reopen a lot of them pretty soon, I think. That would be great, yeah. Because I went out to Las Vegas and visited you, and um, yeah, things are really different out there. Boy, isn't that the truth? They actually shut us down right in the middle of of COVID at its worst. They shut down all the hotel casinos. I, I never thought I would see something like that. I mean, that's pretty, that's like shutting down all of the uh, car manufacturing companies in Detroit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're still a company town to a certain extent here. So that was painful. Uh-huh. That, that is true. So, yeah. So I see you were born in Detroit. You know, I was born in Port Huron, Michigan, which is just north of there. Yes, absolutely. And uh, although I haven't been back for years, I still have a, a fondness in my in my heart for Detroit and that whole area. And uh, I've got a lot of relatives there still. So mm-hmm. I might need to schedule a trip back pretty soon. Mm-hmm. But somehow you find yourself to Vegas. And How about I know that? From, from your book, you gave me a copy of your latest book, The House Always Wins, which was fabulous. And I, I mean, I, I read it all at once, like in four, four, four and a half hours. Well, and that's what it's it made down. for. They're good. I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. I couldn't put it down. So um, now you're totally a Vegas guy. I mean, so how did you know that Vegas was it when you first moved there or once you got there? How did you know this is home? Oh, I had no idea. So like a lot of people, I, I came out here uh, for a job offer. And in those days, I, I wanted to be in, uh, in radio and uh, as a broadcaster. And I bumped around a number of small stations uh, throughout the Southwest. And then I had an opportunity to move to the big city, right, Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, I think most people who, who move here think, well, I'll try it out. I'll stay a couple of years, see what happens. Eventually, I'll get back to Southern California or, you know, another big market. And that was the thinking. And here I am 40 years later. 
I always say that Vegas has a very strong gravitational pull. Uh, once you get uh, kind of sucked in, even people who move away tend to move back. I've seen that time and again. And it's just a very unique, interesting town. Those are the types of things I try to capture in my books, for example. Uh, what it's like to really be a local in one of the oddest, strangest, most interesting cities in the world. Wonderful. And you, you know, you did start out in Southern California. So uh, tell me a little bit about your journey, how you started out, how you got to be doing what you're doing now. Well, none of it was planned. You know, uh, I think that's probably true of a lot of people. But, uh, you know, luckily, I have one skill, which is writing and communicating. And I'm glad I've got that because I've been able to, to monetize it and make a nice living, um, sometimes a nice living, uh, doing things that I really enjoy through the years. And uh, I think that was just, you know, uh, as a kid, I would, I would do well in those classes. I wouldn't do so well in, in math. You know, I, I don't think uh, that I could have followed your path, for example, and, and become a, a doctor because, you know, I just don't have that, that part of my brain doesn't work that well. So, but, you know, when I was in, in elementary school and then high school, you know, I got a lot of encouragement from teachers about, hey, you're good, you should pursue this in terms of writing essays and, you know, short stories, whatever they, they might be. So, and at home too, my parents were proud of me for doing that. So, you know, you kind of go along that, that path, but that was also sort of the end of the golden days of radio. So I thought, well, that's a way to be a communicator. And I did that for seven years and I found out that it, the pay is horrible and that you have to keep moving around. And it was, it stopped being fun. So after I decided, okay, I'm going to try something different. Uh, I took a couple of corporate marketing jobs, uh, learned some stuff, and then decided, okay, I'm going to try this out. You know how we do, we're kind of young and arrogant, and we think, oh, I can do this. So <laughs> I opened my own little uh, uh, ad agency and, and marketing and PR firm. And at first, it was just myself and my wife. And I was tickled that I could even make some money doing what I enjoyed. Uh, and then that turned into a merger with the company that I'm with now. And um, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I decided that I needed more of a hobby. And I had some life experiences that, that kind of uh, got me off the dime, so to speak. And I decided that I wanted to, to take a shot at writing a, a Vegas novel. Uh, for all writers, I think, or maybe most writers, writing a novel is the holy grail. And, and my first goal was just to see if I could write something long, because most of what I wrote was, you know, page, two pages, 10 pages. And I knew that a novel had to be 60, 70, 80,000 words. So I thought, okay, I've been here a while. I know this town. I know where the bodies are buried, sort of, so to speak. And I said, okay, I'm going to see if I can put my own spin on it, because I've been paying attention and taking notes. And I, I want to see if I can incorporate that into something that is interesting. And that eventually became uh, Dice Angel. Uh, back in those days, it was the very beginning of self-publishing, and I tried to get a traditional publishing deal. Uh, had nothing to show for it after about 18 months, although I got close. Had some interesting experiences, learned a lot, and then thought, well, you know, I ran into a guy that was, this is like 2000, right? So uh, because of the internet and the beginning of short-run publishing, he kind of walked me through the process, and that's 
how Dice Angel came out. It did really well, surprisingly. I thought, well, this is easy, but it's not. And then um, each subsequent book did not quite reach those heights, but it did lead to a traditional publishing deal and actually a number of those. So that's kind of the, I feel like I'm filibustering, which is a bad word, but that's kind of the journey that got me to, to talking to you today. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your book. So you gave me your latest book, uh, The House Always Wins, and it was very intriguing. And you put so much of the history of Las Vegas into it, you know, something someone who's not from there would never know, making it intensely interesting, but also having stories within stories, which I love having stories within stories. Yeah, I enjoyed writing that too. And I did a lot of research to, because you want to make sure that you're getting it right, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, you certainly don't want writers, uh, readers to come back to you and say, oh, you got this wrong or whatever, and then, then it's too late to fix it. But uh, we have a place out here called the, the Mob Museum because so much of Vegas was founded by mobsters mm-hmm. for good and for bad. And I spent a lot of quality time there doing research. And of course, you know, these days you wonder how you ever wrote anything before the internet. Well, I know because I kept running to the library, but uh, you know, now it's a couple of clicks and, and you've got what you need. So uh, the, the research and the history is very important to me because it kind of grounds it. And, and I'm learning a lot as well as I'm, as I'm doing that uh, and I'm writing about it, I'm becoming more familiar with my adopted city. Mm-hmm. So um, tell me about, um, what did you call it, Dice Angel. What, tell me about that book. So my goal with all of these books, you know, oftentimes you get motivated because you're annoyed with something, right? Or irritated. And it seemed to me that all the books I read about Vegas and all of the movies that I saw about Las Vegas were very superficial they were written from a standpoint of people that maybe came to town for a week or two and, and kind of looked around and thought that they really understood us, but they never got off the strip. And, you know, we're a town of 2 million people. And so 30% of the population is connected somehow to the casino industry. But for the rest of us, we're just like anyone else. We're just trying to earn a living and raise a family and, and be good people. And, you know, it just seemed like the, the fiction at the time was not capturing that. Um, so that was my first goal. Secondly, you know, inspiration's everywhere, right? So um, I saw an ad in one of our alternative weekly newspapers uh, and right on the, which, you know, those are always a little bit strange and quirky and, you know, they're fun. And this was a classified ad from a woman named Julie who said that she could bring people luck at dice. And it ran week after week after week. And I thought, well, she wouldn't run it if people weren't, you know, calling her. She wasn't making money on that. So I thought, this is Vegas. That could, you know, be a quintessential Vegas kind of a, of a character. Mm-hmm. And so I called her and had a nice conversation. She was obviously a little crazy. And I thought, I need to know more. I could build a plot around a character like this. And I wound up um, going out and shooting dice with her, learned a lot, captured kind of the character. She, I was undercover, she didn't know I was gonna <laughs> maybe use her for a, for a book. And 
I lost all my money in like 15 minutes. So she couldn't do what she said she was going to do. But normally she would get a percentage or a $50, uh, you know, minimum, whichever was higher. And she was a nice person. She offered to waive. She felt bad because, I mean, I really, and I'm not a lucky gambler anyway. I hardly ever do it. But she couldn't reverse my bad luck streak. And uh, she felt bad. And she offered, you know, you don't even have to pay me the 59. And I paid her because she didn't realize that that what what I learned was worth, you know, a lot more than $50. Mm. But it was a great, great experience. And from there, um, I was off and running on the book. I also fictionalized a friend of mine who runs a bar and grill out in Henderson. And I combined those two real life characters, put them together. Um, they're very, very opposite in the way they think and their worldview. And then what they teach you in, in fiction is start piling on the problems. And I got to the point where he was so desperate and he was going to lose his bar through no fault of his own. Well, through a little fault. And finally, as a last resort, he connects with this woman who calls herself the Dice Angel. And they take the last of his money to go out and try to win back what he owes the IRS. And therein lies the, you know, the suspense, hopefully, and the, and the interest in to see how he does. And in all my books, I try to come up with at least one kind of a twist for the end, because I, I really don't want people to try to... To, to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. Because I think that keeps them engaged. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw the end coming. I actually had two twists in House Always Wins. Yeah, uh, I no, no, I wasn't sure about the end. And it did okay. it, it end differently than I was thinking. What were you so, thinking? Maybe I missed an, an opportunity. Oh, I don't know. I, I was surprised at... Um, uh, the main characters, how she actually reacted. Um, and I wasn't expecting her to do what she did. <laughs> oh, <good>. For sure. <laughs> right. Well, that's the other thing they teach you in writing school. And I never went to, I mean, I took a lot of journalism courses, minor journalism, but I, I haven't taken a lot of writing classes, but I've read probably a hundred writing books. And they always teach you that along the, the arc of the character, they have to change. Mm change for the better, change for the worse, something has to happen. There's an inciting incident. And then over the course of the, the story, something has to happen and they, they change to, to react to it or to be proactive. So yeah, I wanted her to be very different at the end than she was at the beginning. Yeah, and she was. She was seemed like a person who just kind of minded her own business, just wanted to you know, deal with her family. And then she comes mm-hmm. out at the end at this very strong, powerful. Yes. Uh-huh. Person. <laughs> Good. And, you know, this is the first book that I ever wrote, first person from a female's point of view. And that was hard. Mm-hmm. I had to do a lot of research on that, too. Not really, because, you know, I've been married for 36 years and mm-hmm. I've got daughters and I work with mostly women. So they were all my consultants. And I wanted to make sure that I got that right, that I wasn't just some dude writing, trying to pretend that he's not pretend, but trying to get inside the head of, you know, the opposite sex. And I wanted to make sure that that I was getting it right because I needed a new challenge. Mm-hmm. And Lord knows what I'm going to do next time. I don't know. 
But my other books had been very male dominated and really, uh, you know, sort of a like Jimmy Delaney in, in Dice Angel is a is kind of a Vegas wise guy, macho kind of dude. And so I had done that and I wanted to try something different. And whether I pulled it off or not is for the readers to, uh, you know, to say or not. Yeah, I, I'd say it's great. And I recommend people go and read your books. In fact, that's on my list to get your other books. Thank you. <laughs> now they're very different. So just, I'm just <laughs> warning you. So. Wonderful. So you were talking in your um, Dice Angel about luck. You know, so many people go to Vegas, you know, they think it's luck. Is it luck? Is it karma? Is it, what is it? How is it that some people win and some people really do horribly? <laughs> there's, there's the mystery right there. And I am fascinated by what you just said, by luck and karma. And my own story is when I, before I moved here, um, when I was in Southern California, I used to come out a couple, two, three times a year to, to gamble. And I studied blackjack and craps and, you know, considered myself a pretty good player. And my first two or three trips here, um, I won. And I thought, just like with the first book, I went, oh, you know, it's selling well, this is easy. And then I started on when I moved here, I also thought, well, this first job is not paying a lot, but I'll supplement my meager income with, uh, by gambling. And I learned very fast that when you live here, it's an, a, an entirely different kind of a situation and mindset than coming here as a, as a visitor. So as a visitor, you have your bankroll, you've allocated 500 or 1,000 or whatever you can afford and that's your gambling budget over and you want to make it last over, you know, two or three days. When you, when you live here, you're playing with what they call scared money. Meaning that, you know, if I'm taking 50 bucks and I'm going to try to double it. Um, but if I lose it, I'm going to have a bad week, you know, cause that's now that could be food. That could be gasoline. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a young man at that point. I'm, I'm not making any money. And, I just went on the world's longest losing streak and it took me a, and, and a very dark losing streak. And, 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 you know, where I just started thinking of myself as a loser and why am I doing this? And then I beat myself up, not in reality, but, you know, metaphorically, it's probably hurts even worse. And it took me a while to realize that if you live here, you can't gamble. You just can't. Unless you're so disciplined, and I know people that, that are professional poker players. I know people who are professional sports bettors, and they do well. And the reason they do well is because they treat it like more than a full-time job. In other words, they're handicapping and they're, they're disciplined. And they, if they have a bad day, they don't go chasing the money to try to win it back. They know tomorrow's another day. And at the end of the year, they add up their wins and losses and, and, you know, if they've made a nice profit, then it was a, it was a good year, but they're working it every bit as hard as I do at my, at my day job here at Imagine. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't that guy. So anyway, that's kind of the, the whole luck thing to me is so much of it. Well, here's what it boils down to, you know, they don't build these billion dollar hotel casinos, because they're giving money away on a regular basis. 
I don't know what the percentages are, but most people who come to town and play lose. But every now and then somebody hits a big jackpot or something, and that's great PR because then everybody else wants to come and try to get one. And meanwhile, they're just, uh, you know, in, in, during non-COVID times, the hotel casinos are, are making money hand over fist and they're expanding. And um, it's all on the backs of, of you know, the betters who uh, just those particular betters, for lack of a better term, are suckers. And, you know, if they don't do their homework and they're just here and they're drinking heavily and, you know, they're here to have a good time, there's nothing wrong with that. We locals love that. They're fueling the local economy, but they're kind of making their own luck and it's not so good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's my little essay on luck. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I know you have um, several things that you've been contemplating and thinking about life and you sent something in your bio and I'm going to just slaughter this. Tikkum Olam. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So talk about so, that. It's a philosophy. It's a Jewish philosophy. And it means, um, now I'm going to butcher this, but basically it means that, that as a person, as a human being, you have an obligation to leave the world better than you found it. And that doesn't have to be big, grandiose things. You know, every, every day you've got opportunities to do something nice even if it's just a, as corny as it sounds. It could be holding a door open for somebody. It could be smiling at someone. You know, it doesn't matter whether they smile back or not. You're putting things out there all the time and you don't know the ripple effect that it has. So it just basically is, you know, be a, be a human being. And, you know, that's more important, I think, these days than ever with, with all the you know, the political divides and, and it seems like 50% of the population, you know, hates the other 50%. And let's, why not, you know, maybe things don't get solved from the top down. Maybe that's not a maybe, but, you know, from the bottom up, we can all do little things. Mm -hmm. And at the end of, you know, when you come to the end of the line, I think that's what matters. You know, none of this is original uh, on, on my part, but, you know, we've all seen that thing about, you know, when you're coming to the end of the line that uh, um, it doesn't matter how much money you made. It doesn't matter how much time you spend at work. And I say this and then I'm, I don't listen to myself because <laughs> I work a lot. But, you know, what really matters is how you made the world a better place. So that's what that is. It's a simple philosophy. I've read a lot of different philosophies and, and I gravitate towards, a, you know, many different ones. I, I'm, I'm very... Um, into Zen, the Zen way of thinking. Lately, I've been reading about the Stoics, uh, which a friend of mine said is just uh, Zen with an attitude. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> so reading about Marcus Aurelius, I think maybe I didn't pronounce that right. But, uh, you know, the, the ancient, uh, here's another one that I don't know how to say, Epictetus, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Regardless, that appeals to me as well. So you can get wisdom and, and truth from so many different types of philosophies. And I try to, you know, see which ones resonate with me. And then I try to not just learn about them, but to act on that. Mm -hmm. So do you have any special morning practices you do or certain things you do to keep yourself centered? No, but actually here, this is funny because can, can you see this? Uh huh. It's just a C. 
And guess what that stands for? And I didn't know you were going to ask this question. Oh. It stands for centered. And it's a, it's another client of ours. And we've got some really good, wise, smart clients. And this guy um, talks about how that centering starts physically. And, and once you're grounded, then the rest of it follows. So, you know, and I notice that as I'm writing and there's tension and there's things going on all around me and the phones are ringing and I'm hunched over, you know, the keyboard and getting really tense in my, in my shoulders, my posture's not good. And then I have to get up and walk around and kind of shake off the, you know, the cobwebs. Um, that that reminds me to just stop from time to time and straighten up and breathe and, you know, take a little bit of time. But my morning routine is like Groundhog Day. It's pretty much the same every day. And, you know, um, I, I have these cats, two cats. I call them alarm cats. I don't need an alarm clock because they get me up every day early at the same time because, you know, they want breakfast. <laughs> and they think I work for them. And they're right. So I get up and I do that. And then I've got, or otherwise they'll, they'll hound me immersively. And then I go about certain routines. So I do a little exercise to keep from falling apart. And then I make myself a smoothie and then I do this and then I do that. And it's like, you know, then when I walk through the door of the office, because even during the pandemic, we got a big office here. And, but I can't really work from home because something happens mentally and emotionally when I walk into work and it's kind of like, okay, it's game time. And it's a completely different mindset. So even when nobody else was coming in, I would come in every day. Plus at home, the cats sit on the computer keyboard and I, you know, that makes it hard. <laughs> that is funny. It's such funny. a pain, but you got to love them, right? Mm -hmm. So with all this happening and us being, you know, home more of the time, are there any things that have changed for you as far as in your personal life or things you've done or new things? Oh, sure. And, and maybe, so first off, maybe this doesn't sound good, but um, I think most writers are introverts at heart. And although I, you know, I like people and I like getting out, but really where I feel best is just kind of isolated, you know, lost in my own thoughts. And so being alone at home a lot, because my wife would go into her office too. So at the times when, when I was alone, um, that wasn't hard for me, you know, and, and I, and, and that doesn't mean that I don't empathize empathize with the people that really were struggling with that. But, uh, but for me, that particular aspect of it wasn't difficult. So I, I got caught up on some movies. Um, I did some, uh, you know, I, I did a lot more reading. And I've played guitar poorly ever since I was a kid. And then I got kind of fed up with it because I didn't see any progress for, I mean, for years. Uh, I just didn't pick it up. And I, and then off and on, I've, I've been taking a, another shot at it here or there. But during the pandemic, I really decided that I was going to see if I could get at least decent with it and get as, as, as good as I was capable of being. You know, obviously, I'm not going to be Hendrix or Clapton. But so I got serious and I do notice improvement now. Mm -hmm. It's the reason that it's hard to improve is because it's hard. Practicing mm -hmm. is hard. <laughs> but I had certain goals and I wanted to get faster. I wanted to learn how to shred, which I'm still not quite there yet. But, you know, I, but finally, for the first time, I see that I'm, I'm getting better. 
and now I play along with some of my favorite songs and uh, I'll tell my wife, yeah, you know, she'll come home and I'll be playing and I'll say, yeah, I'm playing with uh, Clapton, you know, mm-hmm. so he doesn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm playing with Carlos Santana, you know, these are, these are challenging songs. The they are, are, yeah, those two. <laughs> right, but, and, and others, but, mm-hmm. but I'm trying, you know, I, I can see that I'm getting a little bit closer. So that's, that's something, that's some, a couple of good things that came out of, you know, being isolated more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but basically like so many people, I mean, for a year and a half, I'd, I'd go to work and work alone and I'd come home. And then other than my wife and maybe a kid dropping by from time to time, uh, that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does make you appreciate um, the, the normal mundane everyday stuff that we tend to take for granted. And I can remember, you know, going out for our first meal, you know, when we were vaccinated and we felt like, okay, it's, it's safer to do that. And even though the service was horrible because they didn't have enough people working there, but I was like, wow, this is really a treat. This, this is nice. Let's just sit back and enjoy the experience. Mm-hmm. So so I think it changed a lot that, of us. You know, when things are just back to normal or what, you know, we, we just, take for granted things exactly and, it, and a lot of this has helped us to not take for granted simple things right so again in some ways i think we're better off even though you'd never want to go through something like this again but you you know not to sound like pollyanna but you do have to look for some kind of silver lining in it mm-hmm. as bad as it was and we lost friends i mean uh, you know our family like so many others got hit you know kind of hard and it's, it's, it's a tragedy. And I never thought that it could happen in modern times, you know, but I'm also not an expert in that. I'm not a public health expert, mm-hmm. so, but I would look, you know, when I was in school and I'd read about the, the um, epidemic of 1918, you know, the, the Spanish flu, and they lost about 600, 700,000 people in this country. Now we have fewer people, but I thought, oh, thank God, this couldn't happen today. That was me being naive. Right. We've learned that too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, just to switch gears here for a minute. So um, let's talk about what you do now with your so, PR. Yes. Okay. So we, um, our company, Imagine Communications, uh, has been around, and I'm knocking wood every day, right? I've got calluses on my knuckles, because we've been around 21 years, um, as imagined. And it's, it's a, a challenging industry, because so many businesses feel like advertising, marketing, and PR is a nice thing to have, but optional. So we're very much at the mercy of outside forces, economic forces. So the big Great Recession of 2010, we got hit hard almost went out. We lost like 40% of our business overnight um, from clients either circling the wagons or going out of business entirely or getting absorbed by other companies. And, and that was a really hard couple of years. We managed to make it through that. And then, of course, this last couple of years with, uh, with COVID. So, but we've had some good times too, and we've learned a lot. And the most important thing is that we provide valuable services for clients um, who we always have to remember that we're helping them succeed. 
And so it's a, you know, in a, in a way, it's a noble mission. Not to put too much on that, but what we do has this effect where we're helping business owners. And then that, you know, if they're doing better, then their employees are hopefully doing better. And then their families are doing better and, you know, all of that. So that's what we're trying to do around here. And um, we've got, I'm proud to say, I'm proudest to say that most of our people have been with us a decade or longer. And, uh, you know, we, we must be doing something right. We try to create an environment that fosters creativity because that's our stock and trade. And even if it's a press release, you have to find an angle, you know. And then, uh, then about three years ago, we hooked up with, uh, with the, the Bruce Marin Celebrity Speakers Bureau. And Bruce has been around for decades and decades um, booking speakers internationally. And we're helping him market. And now we're getting involved in, in speakers like you mm-hmm. and, and helping market them and get them more engagements and things like that. So, and every one of them is fascinating. Every one of them is an expert in, in one or more fields. And so we learn from them. And uh, that's been a great, that's been a great uh, partnership. And, and, you know, um, I can see a lot of potential there. Again, once the world opens up completely. So mm-hmm. we're heading in the right direction. That's all I can say. Exactly. So as far as your clients, you're working with, you know, individuals like myself, but then are you working with corporations or small business people? Yes. Target? Mm-hmm. It's across the board. So what we learned from the Great Recession is we were not diversified enough. So for one thing, most of our business was in Nevada. And Nevada, again, because of the gaming industry is very vulnerable to outside forces. So when things went bad, uh, you know, we, we did poorly. And we also were very, our client portfolio was very construction heavy. So again, great recession, these multi-billion dollar projects just stopped for years. The plug on them, you know, they pulled the plug on funding and that again, you know, affects hundreds of thousands of people. And what the big lessons that came out of that recession is we needed to get go national and we needed to be in a lot more than just construction. And that's what we've spent the last 10, 11 years doing. So we are, you know, it's just like investments. If you've got all your, you know, what do they say, your eggs in one basket? Mm-hmm. You've got to keep an eye on the basket and, and you can lose that basket or the eggs can break. But if you've got a lot of baskets spread all over the place, then you have a chance of surviving when, when things go really bad. And, and that's helped us in this last, you know, this last go round. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got, um, we're still in construction to a certain extent. We've got big uh, sheet metal national clients and also, uh, local clients in that cons- part of the construction industry. Um, but we're all over the place. We've got startups, we've got mom and pops, we've got huge multi-million dollar companies and everything in between. And, you know, it, it seems to be a winning formula. There are times that we think that we'd be better off specializing in something, but then we remember that, yeah, when things are good, you know, you can go along with that, go, go on that ride till it, stops 
but then when things go bad, what happens if things go bad in that sector? And then we may not be around to, you know, analyze it anymore. <laughs> also, I'm not the youngest guy. I'm not the youngest guy in the world anymore. So, uh, you know, there's that. So I'd like to, this is, I know this is my last rodeo in, in the business world. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly I want to keep writing books and I want to keep doing other things, but I am slowly trying to back away a little bit, you know, from the day to day. And hopefully, you know, down the road, if my intentions are good, then, uh, which I think they are, uh, maybe we'll figure out a way to, for me to, to exit or at least work part-time, uh, you know, and, and go do some other stuff, cross some things off the bucket list. Mm-hmm. Well, just so people can get a hold of you or work with you, what is um, what are your websites? Also, give us maybe information of where to find your books. Sure. Wow, what a great question. Actually, they've all been great questions. So, uh, my website is just my name. It's brianruff.com, and it's R O U F F, and Brian is with an I. Uh, the books, you know, are in stores, but coast to coast but the listen again the easiest way for good and for bad to to buy anything these days is amazon and all my books are up on amazon and the good thing is that you can read samples and you can see the reviews and you can decide for yourself if you you know you want to take a shot or not they usually discount them so the like the house always wins is uh, retails for 16.95 last i checked Amazon had it for maybe around $11. So, so thanks for get, letting me get that plug in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, we want people to be able to actually find you. Well, that um, would you know, be helpful. Um, and in the books, I include my email address because I love to hear from readers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they've got, well, mostly. Um, you know, the, one of the annoying things, but it always makes me laugh, is that Every now and then, you'll get a reader that has a, a suggestion about how you should have ended it. And, you know, you try to be nice. So they're trying to be helpful, I guess. Mm-hmm. But what, what I really want to say is, then go write your own book, you know. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a lot easier to criticize somebody else than to actually do something on your own. I think Roger Kipling or one of those guys had something to say about that, about it's easy to be a critic. Mm-hmm. You know, it might have been Theodore Roosevelt, actually, getting people. <laughs> regardless but, so, but those stories where you get to choose the ending are fun too you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's for sure <laughs> maybe i'll do that next time i'll have three alternate endings, three alternate endings. <laughs> you can read this these pages or these pages these pages yeah you have exactly. wanted to end <laughs> i love it they can glom onto the one they like best <laughs> that's or right. i'll leave some blank pages and say or write your own that's even better It'll be an interactive novel, right? Yes, I love that. I do too. I think we're on to something here. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. So um, what gives you the most happiness and fulfillment in your life at this point? Well, you know, besides the family, of course, and and there's there's a lot to be proud of there with the the grandkids growing up. my, My oldest grandson is 19, which I can't even believe. And He's a, his brain works very differently from mine and he's a math and physics and engineering whiz. And he got accepted last year to Case Western and he's, you know, he's not killing it because it's a huge transition, but he's doing well. And 
especially under difficult times. Because when he started, um, you know, he'd never been away from home for very long. This is 1,800 miles from, from Las Vegas. And he gets there and the dorm is locked down. So all he's doing is he's in his dorm. He doesn't have a roommate like they normally do because, you know, they're separating everybody. He can't even go down to the cafeteria or, you know, avail himself of any of the campus opportunities. He can't join a fraternity, can't do any of that. And he's stuck there taking virtual classes like this poor kid, you know, and like a lot of kids, he didn't get a high school graduation that was canceled. So they sent his diploma in the in the mail, never got to walk, never got to have that party. Mm-hmm. And I feel bad for him, but he's doing pretty good. So, you know, it, build, it does build character. And, and, you know, so we got that going on. But so it's the family. But really, the uh, you know, as far as more of the professional type life, it is the, the act of creativity. Um, you know, because you're a writer as well and you do other things um, that on a good day when you're in the flow and the zone, it's just there's nothing better. And I call it the writer's high. You know, if you've got three, four good hours at the keyboard and the stuff is just flowing through you and you don't even, your subconscious is working overtime and you just don't even know where some of this stuff is coming from. Um, You can, you know, walk away from that and go have lunch and have, just feel good the rest of the day that you create. Now, even on the worst day, you know how they say the worst day fishing is better than the best day of work, right? And it's kind of like, for me, the, the even the worst day writing, there's times when, you know, I'll write one sentence 10 different times and then just don't like any of them. I go, okay, it's just not happening for me. You kind of grind it out as best you can. Tomorrow's another day. And, you know, you, you can't control either one. You can just keep plugging away and hope that, you know, you're, you're in a position to, to enjoy the, the good parts when, you, when they come to you. Mm-hmm. But I can't just, like, rub the magic lamp. And, and have the genie pop out anytime I want. That's the magic and that's the frustration and that's the, the, the most interesting part of the creative process, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. And it is frustrating on those days when nothing is moving. Right. Yeah. Just you feel like, okay, is my hand stuck? You know, nothing, just nothing. Nothing is coming out because I, I know so many people are on computers right now, but I still, when I'm going to be creative, I'm still having it come out my hand, not, not the computer yet. <laughs> One of the things, and, and that's a great point, is that I've noticed that sometimes when I'm stuck writing on the computer, sometimes I'll take a yellow legal pad and a pen and try it that way. And sometimes that gets things unclogged. So mm-hmm. you, you try little tricks. Sometimes you just got to walk away and go for a walk and, and you know, my, one of my, philosophies is when all else fails go to lunch and and even if you're having a bad day at least you can you know you can have a nice lunch Mm -hmm. that is wonderful well thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for sharing your stories and it's just been a lot of fun thank you this was delightful and i hope we get a chance to do it again i look forward to working with you and uh, i very much appreciate this conversation Thanks. Yeah. So I have one last question before we finish. What is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life? Wow. Um, Again, none of this is original. So I always have to put that caveat on it. But 
do your best to follow your heart. And I know that life gets in the way and I know that we have to make a living. And sometimes that, you know, what you love, you're not necessarily able to turn it into your, you know, your vocation, but figure out a way to do both if you have to. Um, most of my best writing happens really early in the morning, like now. <laughs> it's 5.30 when we started out here on the West Coast, right? Mm-hmm. You're in Atlanta, right? So right. three hours time difference. But regardless, if you really want to do it and if you really have to do it, because sometimes it just nags at you, you'll figure it out. You'll figure out a way, whether it's some Saturdays or you stay up late or you get up early. But do that. That's something that will give you joy and it will really tap into something mystical and magical and no matter what it is whether it's writing or painting or music or whatever creativity is your outlet you know I was talking about feeling obligated you know being obligated you're here to make the world a better place you're also obligated I think to to try to take your natural gifts and talents as far as you can take them Mm-hmm. And I can assure you, you know, my my main goal now is to try to get better with everything that I do, try to get more skilled mm-hmm. at, at my craft. And if you can continue to do that, I can't think of anything more satisfying in life. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll talk to you again soon. Look forward to it.